0: Let me start this morning by asking you all a question: What do you want in life? What are you hoping for? And if the answer for most of us is happiness, we want to be happy. That's behind most of what we do. We get married because we want to be happy. We want to have children. We want because we want to be happy. We choose where we live and what we do for a living. Because we want to be happy. And that's behind our, our quest for wealth or for recreation. Most of us want to be happy. It's what we're going for. But I've got some sad news for you. Most of us will not find lasting happiness in this life. God never promises it. There are a lot of places in Scripture where He talks about happiness. Scriptures talk about uh, certain circumstances that are happy, certain things, certain people can do to be happier. But God never promises happiness. But He does promise something better, something deeper. He promises uh, promises us joy. Now, what's the difference? Last week, when I was on vacation, I was driving through this town in Northern California called Fortuna. I thought of this when I drove through this town. Fortuna is the Latin word for happiness, and it's very closely related to the concept of chance, of fortune. You see, happiness is dictated by circumstance. Things go your way, you're happy. When things don't happen the way you want them to, you're unhappy. Happiness is dictated by circumstance. While joy, on the other hand, is completely different. It's deeper. It's more stable. Joy is based on God's love for us and our delight in Him, regardless through any circumstance. And joy is what God offers. Joy is what He gives to us. Jesus said to His disciples, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And then a chapter later, he says, you will rejoice and no one can take that joy away from you. See, Jesus is with us. He teaches us so that we might have his joy in us and no one can take that joy away from us. But we can lose it, at least temporarily. And I want to talk about that this morning. If you haven't yet, turn with me to Philippians 3. We're going to be studying the first uh, 15 verses or so. Let me just start by reading the first three verses. This is Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, I like this. Paul says, "Finally, my brothers," and then he goes on for uh, two chapters. It reminds me of the uh, preacher that was introduced as a man who needed no introduction. After he droned on for much too long, one of the guys in the congregation leaned over to the guy next to him and said, "That's right, he needed no introduction, but he sure needs a conclusion." <laughs> Really, what Paul, the word Paul uses there doesn't actually mean finally. It just means the remainder. The rest of the stuff I want to talk to you guys about. Here's some more things I wanted to bring up with you. And he starts that by saying, rejoice. Have joy. Be joyful in the Lord. And then he moves immediately to a very stern warning. Starts off by saying, hey, I don't mind telling you to to rejoice again. It's, it's not a problem for me. It's good for you, and, and I don't mind telling you this. You know, there are things that we need to tell each other. We need to remind ourselves again and again. We need to, to gently and kindly remind each other of the freedom and the privilege that we have in Christ to rejoice because it's so easy for our circumstances to get us down. So Paul says, I don't mind reminding you these things. But as soon as he does, then he starts with this, this warning. Watch out for those dogs. And what does that have to do with rejoicing? Well, everything. Realize, Paul did not just stick this encouragement to rejoice on the beginning of our passage, kind of accidentally. Just threw it out and then jumped into other things. In fact, all of the profound doctrine that we're going to be looking at this morning flows out of his call on them to rejoice. The reason is, to a very large degree, Our joy is dependent on sound doctrine. Paul suggests this elsewhere. In Romans chapter 15, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, and literally, in the believing. You see, our joy and our peace come from believing the truth, and specifically the truths that Paul is going to go ahead and explain to us in Philippians 3. There's a close relationship between what we believe and what we think about God and ourselves and our ability to be filled with joy. And nothing can rob us of that joy quicker than these dogs. Now, who who are these dogs? What is this stuff about the dogs? Well, let me read that again. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, and who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now it's clear from the language that Paul uses that these guys are are legalists. In those days they were called Judaizers. These were guys that followed Paul around, got involved in the churches that he planted, and tried to convince everyone there that their relationship with God was dependent on how well they obeyed all the rules and, and all the Jewish uh, customs. These were Jewish Christians, and they wanted everyone to look and act and think just like them. Now, the language uh, Paul uses with them is pretty harsh. At least it sounds pretty harsh. It is pretty harsh. But realize what he's doing is just turning their own words around on them. The Jews of those days referred to anyone who was not a Jew as a dog. A dog was, was the uh, worst type of animal that you could be. It, it was something in their mind that was, that was repulsive and rejected. And they were saying anybody that didn't go along with them was rejected, was repulsive to God. Paul says, no, no, these guys are the ones that are rejected by God. And they said, anybody who doesn't follow all of our rules is doing evil. Now, they focused on all of these rules about how you looked and how you dressed and how you washed your hands and what you ate and didn't eat. Uh, all of these, the, the, these external rules. And they said, anybody that doesn't follow our rules is doing evil. And Paul said, no, no, they are the evildoers. Because with all their rules about what you do and you don't do, they're not leading people toward God. They're leading people away from God. And finally, Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. Now, there's a wordplay in the Greek that's lost in the English. These Judaizers were very focused on circumcision. This was a big deal to them. In the Old Testament, circumcision was a physical sign that someone had placed themselves under the law and therefore were part of God's covenant people. And these guys were claiming that unless you were circumcised, you could not be acceptable to God. Now the word circumcision, peritomain, literally means to cut around. And Paul substitutes a word cotatomain. Sounds almost the same. It's, it's the same same root, just a slight difference, which literally means to cut off. And so what Paul does in talking about their emphasis on circumcision, peritomain, he uses the word cotatomain which literally means to to mutilate or castrate oneself. I I don't think Paul is being vicious here. I think he is enjoying his word plays. But the point he is making is very serious. See, Paul is, is confronting the fact that these people who focus on, on all the rules, who, who focus on all the externals, who want to make us believe that we've got to earn our way into God's favor. These people can rob us of our joy so quickly. They get us, they get us uh, distracted and all balled up and worried about what other people are thinking about us. We lose sight of, of God's love for us. We lose our delight in Him. The result is, if we're not watching out for these guys our joy is gone. Paul says that's completely unnecessary. He says we are the true circumcision. We truly belong to God. And and the sign of that is not a mark on the body. It's the way we relate to God. Paul says we serve Him by the Spirit of God. The term worship could also be translated serve. We serve Him, not in our own strength, not according to our own wisdom, but by the Spirit of God. And we glory in Christ Jesus. That is, our our sense of uh, of identity, our sense of self-worth, isn't based on our own performance. It's based on the fact that He loves us and died for us and lives through us. He says we don't put any confidence in the flesh. We don't look to how smart we are or how religious we are or our backgrounds, or our ability. We don't look to any of these things to to feel like we can stand before God. Paul says, I know, I used to do this stuff. I used to be right in there with these guys. I used to go by their rules. He says, in fact, if I wanted to play by their rules, I could beat them at their own game. Look at verse uh, 4. Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Let me see if I can uh, give an updated version, if Paul was writing this today, what it might sound like. Gave my heart to Jesus when I was three. Baptized by immersion at the age of 12. From Christian parents, father a deacon, mother a Sunday school teacher. Member of a Bible-believing church, went every Sunday, was on five committees, sang in the choir, gave extensively, stayed away from all sinners, had a quiet time every morning, marched in every Christian protest, listened only to Christian radio, and never watched television. Never broke the speed limit, always recycled. Witnessed to ten people a week every week of my life, could out-argue every other Christian and show them how wrong they were, stayed away from liberals and wimpy compromisers. You know, with most of the stuff in that list, just like with Paul's list, there's nothing wrong with it. But if we start looking at these things or anything like them as the basis of being accepted by God, then we've missed it. We, we've gotten confused. We've lost sight of what it's all about. And in fact, the thing that really got to Paul is as we focus on those, we are kept from Christ. We don't turn to Him. Verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes from God. It is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. See, Paul uses some pretty strong language. He says, I I look at that stuff that I used to put my confidence, that that I used to use to make me feel better than other people, that I used to use to to think God had to accept me, and I write it off as a total loss. In fact, he says, it's it's worse than worthless. He uses a a word there in verse 8, the word rubbish which literally means excrement, done. And Paul uses a common street word for it, one that I would be embarrassed to use from up here. The reason Paul feels so strongly about these things is that as he thinks about it, this confidence that he was, he was better than other people, that he was good enough, that, that when he got to heaven, God would look at all of this stuff and say, well, but of course, come in. The reason it bothers Paul so much is that as he looked at these things, he never turned to Christ. He was kept out of true spiritual life. And now he looks at all of this stuff and he says, this disgusts me. I want nothing at all to do with it. It's a total loss. I'm going to pay no attention to it. He says in verse 8, I consider them done that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now, first, it may sound like there are two different kinds of righteousness. There's law righteousness and there's faith righteousness. That's not true. There's only one kind of righteousness, the kind that God has. God is perfectly loving and just in all of his thoughts, attitudes, and actions. That's what righteousness is. Perfection in thought, attitude, and action. See, there's only one kind of righteousness, not two. But what there seems to be two of is ways to gain righteousness, to gain that perfection. Maybe you can gain it through the law, or you can gain it through faith. Before we get into that, let's figure out what the big deal about righteousness is anyway. Why it's so important. You see, our rightness, our goodness in our thoughts and attitudes and action, the thing we call righteousness, is critically important. First of all, it's the basis for our self-image, our self-respect, our attitudes about ourselves. to the degree that we fail to be loving or just in our attitudes and actions. We experience guilt, and that breeds self-contempt, self-loathing. and makes it impossible, ultimately and finally, to be at peace with ourselves. It's also the basis, secondly, of, of of our trust in relationships with each other. Others accept us on that basis. But most importantly, it's a basis for our relationship with God. We were created to be with God, to have fellowship with Him, to experience a relationship with Him. And that's the only place we will find ultimate fulfillment. But it's our lack of righteousness that makes that impossible. So righteousness is perfection, in thought, attitude, and action. And that righteousness is essential to have a relationship with God. That's why it is so important. And that gets us back to the the, the question of how we attain it. As I said, it sounds like there's two different ways of attaining it, through the law or through faith. But as we look at it, the fact is there's only one way that works. The other way, though it's more popular, is really only theoretical, ultimately only an illusion. Let me see if I can uh, explain why, if I can illustrate this. I thought of this illustration as I was uh, driving on my vacation on a California freeway. One point, this uh, I had to swerve to miss this little car in my lane. I ended up getting on an exit that I didn't want to be on and on to a whole new system of freeways. I thought, hey, no problem, I know how to get around. I'll just work my way back to the direction I want to go. They're both moving the same direction, I thought. They both looked like they were heading the same way. And I thought, I'll just keep working my way back. From that point on, every turn I made was right. (laughs) It was correct. But I couldn't get where I needed to go because that system of roads didn't go there. It was moving off more and more into a different direction. I fought it for over an hour trying to make it work. And finally had to stop and turn around and go back to the road I got off. That was the only way to get back the direction I wanted to go. Now the reality is we were born on the wrong road. No matter how many good decisions you make from that point, it's not going to get you where you want to go. And to make matters worse, while we're on that road, we make more bad choices and we end up more and more lost. Now, most people cannot accept that they're on the wrong road. If they just try harder, they're going to get where they need to go. Most uh, people don't want to believe that righteousness is perfection. They want to believe that it's good enough, it's better than average. But it isn't. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's what it is. That's what righteousness is. People say, well, how can that be? Well, again, let me try to illustrate. Let's say you've got a boat chained to a dock right above this this raging waterfall. How many links on the chain that's holding that boat would have to be bad for that boat to get swept over the waterfall? See, every link could be perfect and strong except one. And it wouldn't be good enough. People say, well, most of my thoughts and and attitudes and actions are good. That's like saying, well, most of the glasses of water I drank didn't have poison in them. It only takes that one. See, and it's the reality that gaining, attaining righteousness through our own efforts, through the law, The reality that that's not really possible that frustrated Paul so much because he had dedicated so much of his life to try and he thought if I just push harder, if I just go farther, it's gonna work. And it didn't work and worst of all, it kept him from ever turning to the only way that does work. Faith in Jesus Christ. See, that is the key to spiritual life. That's the only way to know God and it's only when we abandon every one of our attempts, all our other avenues, that we come to Him in faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith. Now what is faith? It's not positive thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It's not uh, believing something you know to be a lie. It's not a strong feeling about something. All of these are counterfeit faith. Faith is simply trust. Enough confidence in something or someone that leads you to action. When you go to an airport, faith gets you on the airplane. Now, if you look out the window and the airplane's missing a wing... And you see the pilot stagger into the cockpit with a bottle of whiskey in his hand. Faith would not get you on that airplane. Stupidity would get you on that airplane. But if you had reason to believe that the plane looked normal, you had reason to believe that it was sound, it was safe, it was going where you wanted to go, the pilot was sane and sober, and you got on that airplane, that is faith. Faith no matter how you felt about it, no matter how uncomfortable you are with flying, you had faith to get on that airplane. You see, there's no difference in kind between the faith that gets you on an airplane and and Christian faith. The the, the, The only difference is in the object of the faith. Saving faith is in Jesus Christ. It's a confidence that He paid for your sins on the cross. And that that payment is complete and adequate. And God accepts you only, solely on the basis of that payment. And having accepted you, He's placed His Spirit in you. that will transform you. You see, on the cross, Jesus took your sins your mistakes, your wrong turns. And He gave you His righteousness without a single blemish, without a single mistake, without a single wrong turn. Perfection. And it's simply by accepting that as true that you receive that righteousness. That is faith. Now having received... The righteousness that comes by faith. Two things happen. First, our eternal future is secure. Heaven awaits. But secondly, we now have the opportunity, the door is open to know Christ. Without that faith, without that righteousness that comes by faith, we can never know Him. But it's not the same as knowing Him. This is an important distinction. You see, knowing Christ is an ongoing relationship <clears throat> with a person. What's, what happens when you receive <clears throat> excuse me, when you receive that righteousness which is by faith is the door is open. There he stands. Now get to know him. See, look at what Paul says in verse 10. I want to know Christ. And the power of His resurrection. And the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Becoming like Him in His death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to get to know Him. That's Paul's ambition. It's not a one-shot deal. This is his lifetime goal, both for this life and for the next life. That's what it's all about. Knowing Christ. And realize it's not knowing about Him. If all we do is know about Him, we're in trouble. Paul said in in, in 1 Corinthians 8, Knowledge puffs up, makes us vain and and obnoxious. But love builds up. See, religion is all about getting to know about God. But that's not what we were created for. We weren't created to get to know about God. We were created... To know Him. Paul is not exchanging one religion for another religion. He is abandoning religion altogether for a person, for Jesus Christ. Paul says uh, that he wants to know Christ. And in addition, he mentions four things that he wants to experience with Christ. Now, these four things really boil down to two. But the four things that he says he wants to experience with Christ are the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, and attaining the resurrection the resurrection from the dead. Okay, let's take a quick look at each of these. First thing he wants to experience with Christ is the power of the resurrection. Now, there are all kinds of power. There is constructive power, creative power, the power it takes to build a dam or to build a very complex computer. And there's destructive power, uh, the power to, to bulldoze a building down or an atom bomb going off over a city. Now, it seems that for humans, our destructive power always exceeds our constructive or creative power. But even our, our, our creative power is impressive, though not in the league with gods. I mean, it's, there's a, a difference in magnitude. But there's one kind of power that not only differs in magnitude, it differs in kind. We have nothing like it. That is the power over sin. James says mankind can, can control anything, a river, a horse, except his own tongue. Still use it to hurt people we love, cut, destroy. Paul talks in Romans 7 about his frustration and his inability to change his own behavior, to change that, that, that sin that he struggles with. He has no power in himself over sin. Now, people, don't take this lightly. Jesus Christ died to accomplish this. But having died, he came back to life. And because we are in him His life is in us. That's that resurrection power, at least unleashed in our lives, to change our thoughts and our attitudes and ultimately our behavior. That's what Paul wanted to experience. This kind of power doesn't look so fancy on a movie screen, but it's profound. Okay, the second thing that Paul wants to experience with Christ is the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, don't get confused. Paul did not like suffering. He doesn't just look for suffering. And Paul's desire to share in Christ's sufferings was not an attempt to pay for his own sins, somehow to make up for the wrong things he had done. Now, Jesus Christ's death on the cross was complete and adequate. It was once and for all those sins have been paid for. We cannot share in that suffering, but we can share in the sufferings of Christ. You see, from the very beginning, humans have irresistibly blamed others for their own sin. Adam blamed Eve. Cain blamed Abel. And it just continues on ever since then. And ultimately, that, that desire to blame focuses on God. Now, Jesus came to this earth completely innocent, perfect in his love and his justice. But humankind, in a desire to blame God for their, their unhappy state, focused that desire on him, the perfect representative of God. And they killed him. The hatred toward God was poured out on Jesus. And the fact is, the reality is, as we get to know Him, as His life, that resurrection power, begins to be unleashed in our lives and start to work its way out, that blame will be focused on us. Jesus said to expect it. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that they hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Peter said it's a privilege 1 Peter 4.13, Rejoice in that you are sharers in the sufferings of Christ. Verse 14, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. You see, suffering isn't the goal. Fellowship with Christ is the goal. Getting to know Him is the goal. And as we do, as we get to know Him, as we see Him as He is, we become more like Him, and the result is we will suffer. But in the midst of that suffering, our fellowship grows even sweeter. We become more and more like Him. And now the next thing that Paul wants to experience really isn't Another thing. In fact, the grammar in the Greek makes it clear that this is something he wants to see happen as he is suffering. He says he wants to be conformed to the image of Christ's death. That means he wants to die to himself as he suffers, even as Christ died to himself. So he wants to be able to die to his desire to always hurt back. He wants to be able to die to, to his, his uh, insistence on defending himself. He wants to die to his pride and, his, and that he be vindicated. He wants to die to his selfishness. He wants to die to his, his materialistic desires and ambitions. See, he wants to die to all these things because he wants to suffer like Christ suffered, selflessly, lovingly. Again, it isn't because he wants to suffer. It's because he wants that resurrection life that comes at the end of death. He wants Christ's life to really be working its way out in his life. That's what he's talking about when he he, he longs to attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, when ultimately, when we are resurrected, when we are in heaven... The life of Christ in us will be complete. We will be just like him, John tells us, because we'll see him as he is. That transformation will happen. And Paul is saying, I want as much of that now as I can. See, the whole process goes like this. By faith, we receive the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that comes through faith which enables us to get to know Christ. It gives us the opportunity. And as we get to know Him, that resurrection power is released in our lives. We become more and more like Him. And the result is we will suffer. And in the midst of that suffering, we learn to die to ourselves. And as a result, we experience the profound joy of the resurrection power of Christ's life being more and more manifest, more and more uh, revealed, exposed, In our lives, and nothing can take the joy of that away from us. Recently, I spoke to a man who said, he said this to me. He said, Well, when we die, we're going to be with Jesus, we're going to all be perfect, so why should I work so hard now to be like him? He was serious. Well, I think Paul's response would have been, That's fine, you wait. I'm not waiting. I want as much of that as I can now. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Paul says he's not there yet, but he's going for it. He is, is going to press on. You know, there are so many smug and, and complacent and, and sluggish Christians, but not Paul. Paul is excited. Paul is intense. Paul is radical. Uh, Early in this century, there was a very wealthy man by the name of William Borden who gave up, walked away from all of his wealth, went to China to share the gospel because that's where he was convinced God wanted him. Shortly after he got to the mission field, he contracted a fatal disease. And as he was dying, he wrote, A note to his family who had thought him foolish for going in the first place. And the note simply said, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. So what's the bottom line here? Just go for it, right? We just need to get ourselves pumped up and get out there and charge and be Christ-like. As soon as we try that, we fall into the snare of the flesh. We try to do it on our own strength, our own effort, and we end up exhausted, burned out. Then how do we do it? Well, look at the second half of verse 12. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. You see, it's Christ's work. We reach for it, but he lifts us to it. You now the picture I get is of a, of a small child in a playground, playground reaching for that high bar. There's no way he can leave the ground and get up to that high bar. But he wants it, so he's reaching for it. And it's the adult who picks him up, lifts him so he can get a grip on that. You see, we reach for that Christ-likeness. We want it. When we see it for what it is, we say, I want it and I want it now. And we reach for it. But we must let him lift us to that bar. Remember, it's from faith to faith. One of the things that is so freeing, I think, to Paul is that uh, he knows it's a done deal. That it's going to happen that God is going to finish the work that he started, as he put it in chapter 1. And so he can throw himself in with excitement, trusting God to finish that, that work, not looking to his own strength, knowing that to the degree we can grasp it now, we will be filled with joy. Verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Now, what is that? Amnesia? No, it's a a, a lot of things. First of all, it's forgetting how we've been hurt by others in the process. That doesn't mean we don't have to work through the effects that others have had on us. Often we do, and often that's a very difficult and painful process. But we work through it far enough to be able to to get rid of any bitterness, any blame. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, fighting, slander, along with every form of malice. Forgive each other, even as God in Christ Christ forgave you. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. It also means forgetting the good old days. You know, when the people of Israel were out um, uh, in the wilderness, they looked back on Egypt with fondness and longing. You know, this is what we call euphoric recall. We remember things better than they ever really were. But as their hearts looked back, their hearts turned away from God. Sometimes we can look back, especially if you're going through some difficulty, some suffering now. We can look back and long for those good old days. There's no going back. Later on in Israel's history, uh, when Zerubbabel was rebuilding the temple, everybody was discouraged because this temple wasn't as nice as Solomon's. But God rebuked them through Haggai and said, the glory of this temple is going to be even greater. We know now what he meant, the glory of that second temple was that Jesus Christ himself came and worshipped there. The glory was indeed greater. See, there are times when when we look back at some wonderful thing that, that God has done in our life, Some great way he changed us. Well, that's good. Rejoice in it. But don't focus on it and don't get depressed that those days are gone. Look ahead to the new thing that he is doing now. The new thing that he wants to do in your life. Finally, it means forgetting our own failures. Our life before Christ or even our failures of Today. Face your sin. Call it for what it is. Recognize it as lack of love for God. Then confess it. Be forgiven. Accept that forgiveness. And leave it behind. Don't bog down. Keep your eye on the goal. The word he uses there for goal in verse 14. Is that what you keep your eye on? Keep your eye on Him. And knowing Him. As you do. He will begin to transform your life. To change your thoughts and your attitudes. In action, you become more and more like him, and nothing, no circumstance of life or death can take that joy away from you. Well, I started all this by asking you what you want. I answered by what most of us want is happiness. And again, I can't offer you that. But I can offer you joy. If after studying this passage, you can say, by faith, I want to know Christ. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. Lord, we know that uh, our circumstances won't always be happy. In fact, we uh, take a passage like this and see that suffering is going to be part of our experience. And so we, uh, we appreciate happiness when it's there, but Lord, we want joy. We want the joy of seeing your life, your resurrection power released in us. We want the joy of sharing fellowship with you when we go through those suffering times, those hard times. We want to learn how to die to ourselves in the midst of that so that we can truly experience your power. Lord, uh, we uh, confess how easily we get distracted by those who would have us uh, try to earn our way to you. We want to abandon that and just accept your righteousness by faith. Lord, help us to focus on you and what you've done for us. How much you love us. Help us to delight in you that our joy may be full. Amen.